Let me invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn over to First uh, Corinthians chapter 11 for the, for the next bit of our time together this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, don't own a copy of the Bible, uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we would love to meet you. We'd love to talk to you about what you're about to hear now. And we'd love for you to take with you Bibles that we've provided just for you that should be within arm's reach of you right now. They should be on the back of the pew or seat or down the, down the, down the aisle from you. Uh, you'll find what we're going to look at together for the next few minutes on page 901 of those little Bibles. <clears throat> Meals matter, don't they? I wonder what meals matter to you and why. We need food to survive, obviously. But meals are more than just food for our bellies, aren't they? Sometimes they're symbolic. Sometimes they have, have power. I wonder where you've experienced not just the culinary, but the symbolic and the social power of a good dinner. First on my list would have to be holiday meals with my family growing up. I mean, I can go right back there, boom, in an instant and see the faces, some of whom have died, and, and smell the smells and name the dishes and not just like the food, but the actual dishes that that food would be in every year, same ones over and over. I bet you can too. I remember, uh, uh, and so those, those meals matter. Those meals shaped me. I, I remember too. By contrast, you know, when I left the big family that I grew up in with all these excellent family dinners that we would have most nights of the week, uh, for college, I ended up in a single dorm room, uh, surviving mostly on junk food from Sam's Club, uh, including these little uh, tuna packets that we would get in bulk that had like a, a nasty little can of tuna fish and one little pack of mayonnaise and like four crackers and a little wooden thing that I guess was shaped like a spoon but not actually concave and you would just stir it up and then dish it out onto the crackers. I can distinctly remember being in that dorm room all by myself eating that little can of tuna <laughs> thinking about home and realizing I'm a long way from Alabama. And that's good in some ways. This is an adventure. An adventure that would shape me deeply. But there was some symbolism in that little can of tuna. <laughs> in our marriage, uh, after we had kids, Lindsay and I established a mostly weekly takeout meal routine. You know, for after our kids were down, you know, we were too cheap to spring for the babysitter. But we'd go get takeout and we'd eat it together at least roughly once a week. That was a symbolic meal. I mean, the meal was delicious too, but the symbolism was powerful. We love our kids dearly. We're having the time of our lives taking care of them. But that little tradition says, you know, there, there's more to the two of us than our parenting. And sometimes we need time for, for us. I remember when we moved to Nashville, shortly after we got married, we were invited to a new church uh, and visited with some friends. Uh, and that church was having a, a summer after church supper on our first week there. Some of you guys were there and might remember this. Uh, it wasn't much to write home about on that menu. They boiled the hot dogs, guys. They actually boiled them. Uh, and they had some little baggies of chips. I don't know, maybe some bottled water or some powdered lemonade. But that was basically it. The meal wasn't much to write home about. But that meal had a symbolic power to our family as we experienced it. We were welcomed into that church that night. We were told, we're, we're glad you're here. Here, eat with us. We've got a seat 
and a hot dog boiled just for you. <laughs> if you stop to think about it, I'm sure you've experienced what I have. And if you stop to think about it, it will start to make more sense why Jesus spent time on what would be the worst night of his life, setting up a meal and putting it at the center of the life his people would live until he came again. Why Jesus, at the heart of the Christian life, put the gift of communion, or what we call the Lord's Supper. On the surface of it, eating little bites of bread and taking little sips, hey, it's one of the more bizarre things that we do as Christians. I mean, if you're not a Christian and you're here exploring Christianity, you're going to see that happen a little bit. And we're, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, it's, it's a really strange thing to do on its own, on the surface of it. But in practice, as Jesus designed it, doing the work that he empowers it to do, this little meal has life-changing power, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a church. And the most significant passage in the scriptures for understanding what this little meal is all about is the passage that we have come to this morning in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11. I want to read it for you now. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? <laughs> no, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. This is God's word. You can be seated. This morning, I want to walk you through the details of this text in two big steps with a couple little steps each. Big step number one is a tale of two suppers. That's the main contrast through the whole, the whole, the whole passage. Paul contrasting what they were doing with what Jesus had told them to do. A tale of two suppers. That'll be most of our time this morning. And then follow that with two ways to respond. A tale of two suppers and two ways to respond. The meat of this text, as I've said, is a contrast between what the Corinthians were up to when they gathered for worship and what Jesus had in mind when he set up the practice that Paul calls here the Lord's Supper. So let me quickly walk you through what was going on in Corinth. That's supper number one. And then take an even closer look at what Jesus had in mind for his supper. That's supper number two. Supper number one was the Corinthians' supper. Paul saves maybe his strongest criticism yet in this letter full of strong criticism uh, for this section. I do not commend you, he says, verse 17. In fact, as if that wasn't enough, I'll say this to you. When you come together, it's for the worse, not for the better. In other words, it'd be better if you didn't even show up than for you to show up and do what you've been doing. Strong words. Here's the basic situation. It picks up in verse 20. On the surface, it seems like what they, were, what they were doing was celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper as part of a larger evening meal that they would share together as a church. I mean, the first day of the week back then wasn't a special day to the places that they lived. I mean, it was just a normal work day. And so probably they had to put in a day's work. They had to do what they do on a Monday on a, on a Sunday. So it makes sense that they would gather in the evening if they had to. And that they'd need to eat, you know, because people got to eat. So they're celebrating communion as part of this this larger dinner, which all makes sense. I mean, we're going to do a little bit of that ourselves later today at our members meeting. The problem is that when they came together, they didn't really eat together. In other words, this wasn't a potluck. This was a a bring-your-own-dinner situation. Even worse... Somebody compared it to an airline meal where you got the first class customers, you know, with the actual metal dinnerware. And then the rest of us chumps in the back (laughs) eating whatever you might call that thing that comes in the little plastic plate (laughs) with the, you know, the brick roll and and the the cold butter that can't possibly melt on it. (laughs) They had a meal that just reinforced all the divisions they brought with them into that room. They had a meal, in other words, that was just doing what meals were always doing in ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, mealtime was theater. It was a place to to show the differences that were so important to them, to to, to slot people in in the appropriate social class, a chance to, to posture yourself and to show where you belong and didn't belong. That's the deepest problem of all in Paul's mind. That this gap between what the rich are eating and what the poor are eating was on purpose. Look back with me at the text. He says, in eating, 
Each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. That's the poor who just stumble in after a hard day's work. Not time to grab anything even if they'd had anything in their cupboard. And the rich who have so much to eat and drink, they're actually getting drunk. What? Paul says. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you have to bring these divisions into the church and throw them in everyone's faces? What do you think you're doing? It's clear what they were doing. They were just working to reinforce divisions that ultimately seemed to matter more to them in their hearts than who they were in Christ. These meals were there to make a statement about them. And what did their meals say about their poor brothers and sisters? It said, what I'm eating has nothing to do with you. And your hunger has nothing to do with me. Can you see why Paul would be so upset about that? If you got anything to do with Jesus, you don't get to say to a brother or a sister that they have nothing to do with you. Jesus is a package deal with his people. If you're united to him, you're united to everybody else who's united to him. That means what's theirs is yours, including their burdens. That means what's yours is theirs, including your dinner. (laughs) I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but that's what this whole meal is about. That's what communion is for. To say, we've got a new identity now in Jesus that is so powerful, that is so full of grace, that is so out of step with what I was on my own, that it transforms my relationship to everything else in my life and to everyone else I live around. That's why Paul, looking at what they're doing, says in verse 20, It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You might think it's the Lord's Supper. You might call it the Lord's Supper. But what you're eating is not the Lord's Supper. This one's yours. This one's all about you. Guys, I've never seen us doing this around the table of the Lord, thanks be to God, or around any members meeting potluck or summer cookout that we've ever had, thanks be to God. But I do think we should look for a lesson here for ourselves before we go any further. I think at the very least we can see here a reminder of how sensitive we need to be about how quickly and easily we'll slip into community that's based on something other than Jesus. It just makes sense that we would tend to group around things that make small talk easier. (laughs) Think about it. Like whether you have kids or not, what those kids are into where you do your shopping, what you do for fun, where you go on your vacations. Like just attracts like. And that's just always going to be inevitable to some extent. It doesn't have to be wrong. It doesn't have to be a problem that you got some people in your life that basically match with you on every metric. But at our church, we want to work against building on those connections, using those for our health as a church, relying on them as the main glue that we have between us. And even more than just not using them, I think what we want to do is cultivate together a healthy suspicion of them. Because without thinking carefully about it, we can reinforce class or income divisions between us like those in Corinth. Think about it, guys. 
Think about how much small talk in an average conversation sorts us, depending on similar incomes. How many of the things that we tend to just sort of slip into over lunch, we couldn't really talk about with someone above or below us on the income scale? How easy to forget that that other people are living other lives with other challenges than the ones we faced. How, How easy, therefore, to forget that in Christ, their burdens are your burdens, your burdens are theirs. So I wonder, I mean, how, how diverse is your dinner table? Uh, maybe another way to put it is how, how necessary is Jesus for you to have an hour-long conversation with somebody you have over? How do you get through the meal? How far into it can you get with meaningful stuff to talk about that has nothing to do with Jesus? And let's just pray that the Lord will drive us further and further into relationships where without Christ we got nothing to talk about and in Christ we can talk for days. He's glorified in a community like that one. All right, we've looked at the first supper, the Corinthian supper, the don't do that supper. Now let's look at the second supper, the Lord's supper, where Paul takes them back to the basics, back to the very beginning, beginning in in, in verse 23. The words that Jesus spoke when he established the practice that we call communion. Paul's not teaching them anything new in this little section. They knew already that this was important to do. They were apparently trying to do it in these meals. They thought they were on good terms with what Jesus set up. Paul's not teaching a comprehensive theology of the Lord's Supper here. He's trying to take what they already know and apply it to how they're behaving. Because he wants them to see how far their practice is from what the original intent was behind this, this celebration. So what does Paul want us to see about the Lord's Supper? What's it for? In Corinth and also right here at Edgefield, Paul shows us three things in verses 23 to 26. Three things. First, communion helps us look back. Communion helps us look back. Paul looks back here to what he received from the Lord and delivered to them and what the Lord had done on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread, verse 24 says, when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion helps us remember. Their supper was about what they brought to the table. This supper is catered completely by Jesus. My body, my blood, given to you. It matters that Jesus established this practice during Israel's Passover. The purpose of this meal was very similar to the purpose that Passover had. God told Israel way back then to celebrate the Passover every year because he knew they'd be tempted to forget. He wanted them to remember what he showed them once and for all when they were enslaved in Egypt. They groaned. He heard it. He remembered his promise to their fathers and he showed up for them and delivered them from Egypt. And in doing that, Exodus makes it so clear, his whole purpose there was so that they would know that he is their God and they are his people. In other words, this meal was to bring that past into their present year after year, year after year, year after year to say, remember what he showed us about himself. Remember what he showed us about us. 
I am your God. He showed us that. You can trust him. You are my people. He showed us that. He loves us. And Jesus has that exact same purpose in mind when he says, do this in remembrance of me. He's just using that model to build out this celebration. Only Israel was called to sacrifice a lamb. Jesus says, my body given for you. Israel was called to take the blood of that lamb and wipe it over their doorposts. Jesus says, my body, my blood. This is a new covenant now. Remember this. What more could Jesus have given for us than his body and his blood? What of himself did Jesus hold back in our time of need? Nothing. He gave it all. He's saying right here, everything I have, I give for you. Remember, this is a new covenant. I forgive you though you've sinned against me. This is a new covenant. I'll make you new from the inside out. This is a new covenant. Nothing will ever separate you from my love. Friends, that's, that is the incredible reality behind these simple, straightforward statements. I give everything, Jesus says, my whole life, and I give it for you. This kind of remembering that he's talking about here, it's not about remembering what happened when. You know, like, like facts that you have to draw back for a test. This kind of remembering is about seeing yourself and seeing your whole life through what Jesus has already done for you. I, I read someone recently compare a great autobiography, describe it, celebrate this autobiography because it didn't just help you see the author's life through your eyes, but it helped you to see your life through his eyes. It taught you how to see. That's what Jesus is trying to do here through communion. He wants us to see ourselves through his eyes. So that what he did for us then and why he did it defines who we are now and forever. How easy it is for us to forget how he sees us and what defines us. You know, at work, out there in our jobs, it doesn't work like this. You're defined by what you can do, by how you perform, by what you value you can provide to the people who do or do not choose to depend on you. In here, at this table, we're defined by what Jesus did once and for all for us. Back at home, we have a thousand things to remember, a thousand things to do that fill our thoughts and crowd out our focus on Jesus. We need help to stop and think, no, no, this is who we are. This is what's been done. This is what's at stake and he's fulfilled all that's needed. Out in the world, we, we can't be sure that something terrible won't happen to us tomorrow. It, it might. And maybe something terrible happened to you this week. And maybe you failed again, like you have over and over. And know that you'd be done with you if you were him. We need help to remember. 
And communion calls us back to a memory that shapes us into people who see ourselves as God sees us. Not through what we deserve, but through his steadfast love. And people who see God not through whatever else we're facing out there, but through what he's already done, what he's already shown us once and for all on the cross. Communion is meant to help us look back. We do this in remembrance of him. Secondly, though, communion helps us to look ahead. Communion also helps us look ahead. Their supper highlighted what they were getting out of this world. It said, look at me, I'm winning. Too bad for you, you're losing. The Lord's Supper is meant to fasten our hearts on the world still to come. Do you notice in verse 26? After those simple statements that Jesus makes about what he's doing here in this supper, Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see what he's doing? He's lifting our eyes up and out of this world of sorrow, sin, and death and putting them on what's still to come by a promise that cannot be broken, guaranteed by blood that's already been shed. What he did back then anchors his promises for what he's still gonna do. He's gonna build a new world a world where his victory over sin and death is spread from shore to shore and every corner of the globe. A whole new heavens, a whole new earth, a new world free of sorrow, sin and death, where no one gets sick and no one has any reason to cry ever again. And at the center of that new world, guaranteed by this new covenant, we get to be with him and see him as he is. That new world is coming, and it's coming when he comes again. And the Bible pictures that new world often as a wonderful, joyful, rich, and endless feast. Our little bites that we take now, our little sips that we sip now, they are foretastes of the feast that's coming. They are caught up into a banquet that will never end. They're how we say, we're with that world. Come, Lord Jesus. Guys, the Bible is just unapologetically and relentlessly focused on heaven. It's all over the place in the scriptures. I wonder, how often do you find yourself thinking about heaven and longing for it? How does that longing affect the way you view your life in the meantime? If you don't find yourself longing for heaven often, I wonder why not. I read somebody say this week, our ancestors were afraid of hell. We're afraid of heaven. We think it'll be boring. <laughs> maybe you can relate to that. Or maybe, maybe you're a little embarrassed to talk about heaven because it feels like 
a distraction from the serious problems of this world as if that's kind of zero sum. You can think about heaven, the world to come, or you can think about the real pressing needs of this world and the, 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 the hurts that people have and the suffering they're going through. You, we don't want to be so heavenly minded. We're of no earthly good. And of course, apathy about the concerns of this world is a big problem. I mean, Paul's correcting that right here. Like these people are sitting here eating, gorging themselves, getting drunk while their friends in Christ are right there hungry, watching. That's not okay. But there was no either or for Jesus or for Paul. It's not either you care about people here and now or you care about the world to come. And part, you care about the world to come because you see these precious people suffering right now will have no hope in this world to overcome all of that. And I, that is too much for me. I can't fix it. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, and make it all new. No, Jesus and Paul, they were much more worried about a much bigger common issue with distraction than we have. Friends, it is just far easy, easier to be carried away by the cares of this world, by our own obsessions with what we want or what we fear. That we never look up and beyond to the most real world of all. I think our biggest problem is that the notion of a world to come just can't compare or hold our attention with all the other cares that pull at us here and now. But if that world really is coming, if it really exists and will one day be revealed, there is nothing more realistic and nothing more useful to our lives now than keeping our eyes up and out on what's ahead. One of my favorite preachers from the last century, a guy named John Stott, many of you will know and have read some of his books. He, he once spoke to a huge gathering of college students in Urbana, Illinois, back in 1976. He was challenging them to spend their lives making Christ known throughout the world, you know, take, taking them while they're young and eager and energetic and saying, you know, you don't have to climb that corporate ladder. That doesn't have to be all there is. You could go and make Jesus known. And in this sermon, he warned them of how easy it would be for them to live without the ultimate end in view where we're headed as an orientation for how we're living now. Here's what he said. Lift up your eyes, he told them. You are certainly a creature of time, but you're also a child of eternity. You're a citizen of heaven, an alien, an exile on earth, a pilgrim traveling to the celestial city. Now listen to this image. Stott says, I read some years ago of a young man who found a $5 bill on the street and who from that time on never lifted his eyes when walking. In the course of years, he accumulated 29,516 buttons, 54,172 pins, 12 cents, a bent back, and a miserly disposition. But think what he lost. He couldn't see the radiance of the sunlight, the sheen of the stars, the smile on the face of his friends or the blossoms of springtime for his eyes were in the gutter. There are too many Christians like that, Stott says. We have important duties on earth, but we must never allow them to preoccupy us in such a way that we forget who we are or where we're going. Friends, Jesus gave us this meal right here, communion, 
to protect us from that fate. We will spend our days from now to the end constantly pulled towards important things that are not ultimate. That's inevitable. That's going to be our life. But when we come to the table, when we come here, we celebrate what's coming where we really belong. We look ahead to that day when death will be swallowed up in victory. We look to the city where there will be no sickness or crying or pain. To the day when we will see with our own eyes the resurrected body of the one broken for us. And one of these times when we eat and drink together in this room, one of these times it will be our last. Before we eat and drink together with him in the new Jerusalem. Think about that. And when you eat and drink, say in your heart, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We're waiting. Communion helps us look ahead. And finally, communion helps us to look around. You guys remember the context here? I don't have a smoking gun reference for you on this one so much as the whole section of the chapter. Communion helps us look around. Paul isn't going back to Jesus' words and what he told them before because he's being nostalgic. He, he, he's not doing it to lay out a detailed theology of the Lord's Supper as if they didn't know this stuff already. He, he's going back to these basics, these simple statements that Jesus made to set them straight. Because the thing that was missing for them, the gaping hole in their practice of communion, was the body of Christ formed around his body and blood given for you. Because in this meal, Jesus is the thing on the menu, the only thing. Jesus is available to anyone from anywhere. Anyone who wants in can get in on this meal. And a meal with, with this focus, a meal with this food has no bring your own option. We feed on them together or we don't eat. It's, how, it's what Paul said in chapter 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread. We who are many and not all the same are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Feeding on Jesus unites you to all others who feed on Jesus. That means a meal that's focused on what Jesus has promised. It can't be a theater for showing how much you're getting out of this world. It's a meal for, for citizens of that kingdom, for, for exiles on the run, people who are yearning together for a forever home. A meal like this is meant to blow up all those petty distinctions between us that don't matter, that won't outlive us. It's a meal that's meant to fuse us into a new people bound by what matters most. This meal is our chance to kill off any sense of superiority we might feel or insecurity we might feel or resentment we might feel or envy we might feel. It's a chance to remind ourselves over and over as we take this meal looking around the room at everyone else who's taking it. That though I might never ever wear that outfit in a thousand lifetimes, we are brothers in Christ, naked, coming to him for what we wear. That though I can't imagine a world in which someone could reasonably vote for your chosen presidential candidate 2024, ultimately Jesus alone provides both of us with a hope that no candidate could ever supply. 
Reminds us that though you might shop at Turnip Truck or Whole Foods or Dollar General or not eat anything you didn't grow in your own yard with your own compost. No matter what, we're all thirsty. We're all starving. We're all unsatisfied and stay that way unless we feed on Jesus. And no matter how much money you may have, we are all impoverished and unable to buy what we really need. But right here, we have everything. Brothers and sisters, one body, because we feast on Jesus. That's what this supper's for. That's the work it's doing in us. We look back, we look ahead, we look around, and we say, Jesus, it's all centered on Jesus. My life rests on Jesus or I die. So now what? And that's what it's all for. What does that mean for how we respond to this text? I want to quickly conclude with two ways to respond that Paul lays out for us. Paul has called them out for what they're doing. He's taken them back to what it's all for. And now in the final verses of this text, he drives his point home. He he lands his plane, so to speak, and basically lays out these two ways to respond. A warning on one side, don't do that. And then underneath that warning, implied in that warning, an encouragement of what we should do instead. So here's the warning. Here's the first way to respond. We could take communion in an unworthy manner. That's what we don't want to do. Paul's words in this final paragraph are direct and unmistakable. This is serious business. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he says, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, it's an offense against Jesus himself and all that Jesus accomplished for his people. That's serious. That's a big deal. He means what he says. So serious that this brings God's judgment. Verse 29 Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is terrible. And I take him to mean exactly what he says. So what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? How do we not do that? I think it's important to say what it doesn't mean first. It's not saying that you can't take communion if you've got sin in your life. Sometimes I think this passage has scared people away from from celebrating a meal that's meant to help them remember there's forgiveness for sinners at the cross. Because you, you read that and you think, well, if I know I've got sin, then that somehow taints what this is and could get me in trouble. Sick, maybe dead. That's not what that's not what Paul means to say. He's not saying you need to examine yourself first and make sure there's nothing out of place in your life. Make sure you're worthy to sit and eat at this table, that you belong here among Jesus' friends. Paul doesn't say don't come if you're unworthy. He says don't come in an unworthy manner. The unworthy part is not about the person, but about the manner in which they come to the table, what they're doing as they participate. The only people who have any business taking communion are people who know full well they're not worthy. (laughs) That's kind of the whole point. Jesus designed this for you if you know you don't deserve grace from him. To remind you that he's gracious to you anyway, even if you don't deserve it. 
<laughs> the point of this meal is to remind us that Jesus is a friend of sinners. <laughs> it's to remind us that it's the sick who need a doctor. Jesus said that. He says, do this in remembrance to, uh, of me. You're the sick. I'm the doctor. Do this. Take. Eat. The only qualification for this meal is knowing that you bring nothing to it. That everything depends completely on him. So if, if communion has been a fearful thing for you in the past because of this verse, I, I want to relieve you of that burden and say the fact that you're concerned about it is probably a good sign that you don't have to be and that you have every reason to run, not walk, to every chance you get to celebrate this meal with your people. That's not what it means. What, what, he, what does he mean? I, I, I think he means what this context informs us. Or what, he, what he's been talking about overall, about the corruption in their supper, has to set what we, what we think uh, he means by an unworthy manner. The way they were doing it, that was unworthy. I think that comes through in this key phrase in verse 29. Look back at verse 29. He says, anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. People disagree about what that means, but, but I'm convinced by those who see it in light of this wider contrast, uh, context and all that was messed up and how the Corinthians were celebrating this supper. It's unworthy. You're coming in an unworthy manner when you come to the table without focusing on how your actions are going to affect the health of God's church. You're coming in an unworthy manner when you're not discerning the place of the body, of the whole, in what's going on here and in your posture towards it. I mean, he's going to use the body as a metaphor for the whole church in chapter 12. We'll see that next week, like right after this. He's already used it as a metaphor for the church in chapter 10, the passage we just read a minute ago. So on both ends of this right here, he's talking about the church as the body. And he says, don't come without discerning the body. I think what he means is you need to see everybody and your impact on them in how you come to this meal. So if that's what he's got in mind, don't come to this table if you're actively working against the clarity and the unity of this body in this gospel. That's what it would mean to come unworthy. Don't come to this table while you're actively working against all that it stands for. You might not realize that you are if you don't stop to examine yourself like verse 28 says to do. When he says examine yourself, I think what he means is not, am I holy enough to do this right now? But something more like, Am I causing division even though Christ died to make us one? If I am, it's dangerous for me to join in this meal right now. Am I gossiping about a brother or sister as if they don't belong to Jesus? As if they weren't precious enough to him for him to give up his own body and blood for them? If I am, by all means, I gotta stop. I gotta confess. I gotta make it right before I take another bite. This meal is dangerous for me if I'm working against those for whom he died. Am I holding on to conflict with somebody even though Christ made peace with me? If I am, that threatens the body. I need to put down this bread. I need to put down this cup. I need to go straight to that person. I need to make peace. Am I holding on to or spreading beliefs about Jesus that don't square with the gospel that the Bible teaches? If so, that's dangerous. That's dangerous for them. And that makes it dangerous for me. Friends, I think we should take these warnings at face value. The Bible makes it clear not all sickness and death come from somebody's sin. 
And sometimes our suffering is mysterious and working God's purposes that we won't get to see into until glory. But sickness and death can absolutely be tools that God uses to discipline God's children, to protect them, as Paul puts it, from being condemned along with the world. Verse 32. And if nothing else, what I want us to take from these warnings is that God loves his church. It is precious to him. Her purity and health is his primary objective in the world right now because it's through this church that he's getting the message out to all who might hear it that there's a, there's a place here for them too. Do not side with God or against God over his church. That is a grievous thing to do. Make sure you're discerning the body in all you're doing. Let's not take communion in an unworthy manner, in other words. Instead, way number two, let's take it in a worthy manner. How about that? <laughs> he doesn't actually spell this out positively, but I think we know by now what he means for us to do. We celebrate communion in a worthy manner when we come to the table empty-handed. I am not above a free meal. I can't afford it, but I desperately need it. I'm starving for what only Jesus can feed to me. Bottoms up. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If Jesus doesn't feed me, I don't eat. Come like that, empty-handed, ask him to feed you again. What does it mean to take communion in a worthy manner? Well, come, to, come, come often. This is a God-given power tool right here. It's meant to reshape us into the beautiful image of Jesus. It's meant to hold us on to faith and the power, the hope he's set in front of us. There is nothing in your calendar, friends, more important than celebrating communion with your church. There is nothing. I don't care how beautiful the camping weather is. It cannot compete with the value of this meal to your formation as a Christian or to the value that this meal gives to your people when you're here to celebrate it with them. Let's come often. That's worthy. And let's come together. That's Paul's primary objective here. Five times he mentions that phrase. Verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse 33, verse 34. Come together, come together, come together. So when we come to the table, we come looking around at the room. It's in for me and God. It's for me and God and, and the body that God has put me into. It's about all of us and what we share in him and what we have in one another. This meal is the glue that's meant to glue us tighter and tighter and tighter together from here to heaven. That's why we don't celebrate this by, on, our, on our own in our homes. We don't celebrate it in our families. We don't celebrate it in our small groups or on youth camp. This is for churches like ours to fuse us together in the hope that God has put in front of us. And it tells us now that though we're still waiting, we're not waiting alone. We have Christ between us. So friends, do you want to see yourself with the mercy and grace with which God sees you in Christ? Come to the table. Do you want to set your mind on things above? Do you want your heart in the city that is coming where there's no more death and no more crying? Come to the table. Do you want to belong to a family 
where nobody's got anything to prove, where nobody's got anything to protect, where nobody's got any reason to perform or any reason to feel looked over. If that's what you want, come to the table because that's what this is for. And we're going to come to the table now together to conclude our time. We're going to celebrate communion in just a moment with all the weight of 1 Corinthians 11 behind it. And we invite you to join in this celebration with us if you belong to a church that's faithful to God's word, to this gospel that we've been preaching for the last 40 minutes. You're welcome to celebrate, even if you're just here from out of town for the weekend. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is another kind of opportunity for you, a chance to to listen and to reflect, to watch what we're doing as we come to him as our only hope in life and death, and to think, what if not Jesus is your hope? Who, if not Jesus, will stand for you? Who, if not Jesus, can give you a meaning that your death won't erase? I'm going to pray now to prepare our hearts for this meal, after which uh, ushers will come to pass around the elements as we sing our next song, and then I'll guide us through our celebration in just a moment. Let's pray first. Oh, Father, we thank you for speaking words of such hope and peace. We now ask you, by your power, through this meal, to help us live in the light of what you've spoken. We confess that we are not worthy of what you have done to save us and that we have no hope apart from what you've done to save us and that with what you've done to save us, we have every reason to hang on in faith until Christ comes again. This is what we confess to you now and we ask you to drive it home to our hearts as we celebrate in the way that you've taught us to. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.